Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm Avery Martin, co-host and digital media strategist. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. But don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. Today, we get to sit down with Dr. Lauren Shoemaker, Associate Professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies at Colorado State University and Director of the Adolescent Wellness Lab. Lauren, welcome. Thank you. So we want to start with with your research agenda and sort of the big problems that you and your collaborators pursue. Well, thanks for the opportunity to tell you um, about my research and the research of my team. I'm biased, but I think we address some pretty important topics that I think have been gaining some national and international recognition lately, which I'm pleased to see. So we study, you may have heard, there's a mental health crisis, right? So that's a big part of the work that we do, particularly the mental health crisis in youth. And our particular interest is in how those concerns, those mental health concerns, play a role in preventable chronic diseases. Mm. So, you know, when we think about heart disease and type 2 diabetes, and most of us think about those things occurring in older adults. Um, but unfortunately, there have been increasing manifestations of those problems, particularly type 2 diabetes in adolescents in the young adult years. And so we believe and think that there's some evidence to show that mental health and stress play a role sure, in that. Yeah. And so our work is really centered on addressing the intersection of those problems and figuring out ways that we can partner with communities, particularly communities that are most affected by these health concerns, and develop solutions that work so that we can promote health and well-being, both mentally and physically. And that intersection is so important, of course, that we tend to keep them in their own sort of lanes. And and I think those lanes are better conceived of as, as interwoven in many ways, right? And I think for many of our listeners, what we know about type 2 diabetes in its natural history tends to be sort of in the 40 to 60 age range when we think about this, right? Because of the traditional conception of a later onset of diagnoses. And so for you know somebody who's 10 or 11 or 12 and gets diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, we really don't know what, what are they going to look like from a risk standpoint when they're 30, 35 years old. And that's a rather alarming concept in many ways. Yes. And... You know, I think that unfortunately, we what we do know so far is that earlier manifestation of type 2 diabetes is really concerning in the sense that not only are people living with the disease for a longer amount of time, but kids who present with type 2 compared to adults uh, in the in the demographic that you just mentioned, they tend to present with more health comorbidities or co-occurring health problems, and it's difficult to treat, you know, um, often requires specialty care right? Mm. Yeah, gosh. and a host of uh, interdisciplines to address it the best that we can. And many kids will develop type 2 and live long and he- healthy sure, sure. and happy yes. lives. Yeah. But if we can prevent that from occurring, even better. Early awareness and intervention is certainly going to be part of the solution for sure. Yeah. So you talked about your, your team getting some recognition, and I want to sort of give you an opportunity to, to feature one. This this is a, an institutional recognition, a Mon- Montfort professorship. And so mm. if you would tell our listeners what that means 
uh, we want to celebrate that part of your very impressive CV. Thank you. Yeah, so the Monfort Professor is a distinction given to two faculty every year Mm -hmm. um, by the Montfort Fund. And this is two faculty out of all of CSU, not just the College of Health and Human Sciences. I want to make sure our listeners understand the impact here. Thank you for that, Matt. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I was was really uh, very honored to uh, obtain that distinction. I will say um, for anyone listening who has, uh, has has tried for awards and not received them, note that I was nominated several times before Indeed. I received it. <laughs> so, and that, that, that I think speaks to both the persistence uh, needed for research and, and um, getting re- recognition for research sometimes, but also just our incredible pool of excellent well research candidates here right. and people doing really important work at the university. Well, congratulations. Thank we're, you. We're proud of you. Thank you very much. So that's one way to talk about impact, recognition by peers, recognition by your, your uh, institution. But I, I wonder if you could share an impact story in terms of the people you work with, because that's something, again, that's easy to miss. Or, you know, we, we count publications and dollars and all these, these metrics for how productive we are and, and can sometimes lose sight of the fact that our Often, our, our desired impact is, in fact, not in what journal am I publishing in, but can I move the needle in terms of health crises? Yeah. Ooh. I have so many stories of that. So we got plenty of time. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I think one of the things I'm really grateful for with my career track is that I get to do science, and I love being a scientist. Mm-hmm. And I'm also a clinician. So my background is I'm a child clinical psychologist Mm -hmm. and licensed in Colorado, got licensed in Maryland, and have been working with adolescents in the space of adolescent health and adolescents and their families for a really long time. So I get the joy, I think, of seeing the benefits of our programs, both from a scientific perspective, but also from a human perspective. Um, And so that's something that is very rewarding. Um, And of course, I don't don't pretend to that we have the panacea for all all the ailments of mental Mm -hmm. health or diabetes prevention. But when I think you see cases where you do have that impact on people's lives, it really inspires you to keep going on because this work is hard. It's hard working with, you know, mental health crises and diabetes. And a lot of our families are facing a lot of adversities. They've overcome a lot, but there's a lot of resilience, but there can be also sometimes some, just some feelings of overwhelm when you're working with families who are just facing so many odds working against them. So I'll share a story recently from a program that we're delivering in partnership with Nicole Clark, Mm -hmm. uh, who is with CSU Extension, and she is in La Plata County, the southwest corner of Colorado. And she and I have been working together to deliver a family-inclusive lifestyle intervention that includes components around physical activity, nutrition, cooking, and also mindfulness skills, Uh, learning how to regulate emotions, skills for better handling distress and stress in one's life. Mm -hmm. And we teach those skills primarily to teenagers, but also to their parents. And it's a pretty intensive curriculum. It's about 26 hours spread over about six weeks. And families really make a commitment to do the program. And the whole family comes. 
And really the goal of the program is helping families to facilitate the health changes that they want to make in their lives for their family. Um, So we've tried to be very attentive to diverse family needs. You know, not everyone has the same goals. Not everybody wants to, for example, lose weight or stop drinking soda, even though that would be a good goal (laughs) for all of us. you know, so uh, really it's about, hey, what what do you want to achieve as a family? What would help you to feel healthier and happier? That's really what we're about. So, you know, you do the program and families have their wins and they have their obstacles. Um, but we ran in the summer, end of summer, our first cohort that was entirely bilingual. Um, And primarily actually monolingual in the sense that that all of the parents um, spoke Spanish Uh and our facilitators of the parent portions of the curriculum um, or native Spanish speakers and uh, the teens spoke a hybrid of English and Spanish. And the families, um, we collect focus group data after the program. The things the families were appreciative about the program included things like feeling accepted and a sense of belonging, Mm -hmm. feeling a sense of community support, and really feeling celebrated in their own cultures, getting getting to bring Hispanic foods and learn healthier versions of those foods. And one teen, I don't have the quote in front of me, but one one teen was could be our spokesperson because wow. in the focus group she shared that, you know, the program, something to the effect of the program really had everything. You know, it had wow. learning to go to the store and choose better, healthier options, learning mindfulness skills for dealing with stress. Yeah. Um, and her parent described that, you know, I knew she really wanted to do this because she would be dragging me out of the house, mom. Like, come on, we've oh, got we've great. got our yeah. this health program let's go that's incredible um yeah Yeah. so it's really neat to see and then just add briefly that another joyful thing about this program is we follow up with them in six months Mm. and that's really a neat time and you know the we don't have any expectations if the families are struggling it's a time to get a little boost of you know let's let's revisit a time that things were working and you know how how could you get back to that or what way what support do you need but we also often get a lot of stories of success and we did have one uh, father figure who was really struggling with pretty significant obesity, and he had lost, I think, over 60 pounds. Oh, um, and just, you know, and it was his, their goal as a family was really to cut back on making fast food a regular part of their diet. Sure. And, you know, the program ended and they just really committed and they're exercising and the kid's doing well. She'd been struggling a little bit in school. Mm. Just really, you know, I'm sure there are many factors, but the fact that we could be some part of that, of developing something that would really help support people to follow um, their health goals and to feel really good about it is really rewarding. Well, and it's neat to see the ripples when when we are focusing on a a spectrum of, of, again, the complex life of a family, right? And Mm There are, are positive outcomes that weren't actually the target of what we're doing, but it's it's the ripples of yeah. stirring the pot in a positive way. I think that's always fun to see, isn't it? And I, you know, I want to commend you, and I push a little bit further on the discussion. W- working with with people groups who are at the margins in society is so important. And so you you 
tailored your program to be culturally competent. Number one, I want to commend you for that. And number two, I want to you know, unpack a little bit. So how do you go about thinking about, we, we know some of this in a particular population, a, a majority population perhaps, and we want to move it elsewhere. How, how does one go about doing that? Yeah, I think the, the first thing I have learned from doing this work is humility. Mm-hmm. I'm a white cisgender woman, and I've grown up with a lot of privilege. And you have to be humble, and you also have to realize that you do not have all the answers. Like quite quite the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we have relied very heavily on a framework that you all are probably familiar with called community-based participatory research. Mm -hmm. And that can mean a lot of different things, but really the guiding principle is that we partner with communities as equal stakeholders Mm -hmm. and that everybody has something to bring. I have some expertise from the work that I've done as a psychologist, as a scientist, my own background as a mom and a, you know, et cetera. But community members have so much inherent wisdom about their communities. And partnering with Extension, I think, is really such an incredible opportunity that we have at this university to be able to you know, bridge that gap between we, you know, we're up here in Fort Collins and you know, we we can't know what life is like in rural Southwest Colorado. Sure. Yeah, I can't know what it's like to live really on a low income, mm-hmm. um, or to face discrimination, racial or ethnic discrimination on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but we partner with extension agents who are members of the community, and goes far beyond that, right? So we to, to launch this program, we did interviews with parents and their teens. We put together. Um, a nine-month series of intensive meetings with a group of about 10 community stakeholders who had, who had identities that um, reflected the lived experiences of people who we wanted to, to have this program before. Sure. Um, and now we have a community advisory board that meets quarterly. We also have experts who do Native American studies, um, who identify as Native American, Hispanic. And so, you know, I see myself as, as using my privilege to garner resources for the program um, and to really let everyone else, you know, lead the work. I think that's how the program has been so successful. It's been very stakeholder and community heavy. And this is a key piece, right? The partnership approach that uh, that you've embedded into your work. Kudos. Well, I think that I think it's important we talk about successful partnerships. And one of my PhD students, Megan Moran, who is a dean's fellow, um, and also just received a National Research Service Award. She mm-hmm. also works with Rachel Lucas Thompson, who's a fellow faculty member in our department. Megan has, um, you know, been such a forward-thinking person around community research and partnership building. And she has a, a paper she's preparing. She collected some data as part of this project to really look at just what you're talking about, like how does trust develop? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's really not a lot of research about that. So I'm excited to see what she can contribute. I know she has a lot to contribute drawing from this project on, you know, how do we form successful partnerships? And I can tell you from just a, a qualitative perspective is you really have to suspend your agenda, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah. we just yeah. work on a different time clock. Yep. Um, you have to be transparent about what your what your agenda is, and then really be willing to to put it aside because yeah. things do not go at the same pace 
um, in communities often that they that they do or they don't work the same way. Different rules. But when community partners can see, not just hear, because sometimes we can say something and do up things that are contrary to that, right? To say that, uh, you know, this partnership is to serve you and your community health needs, not to serve me and my professional development. And if we do that right, there it can be win-win. Right. right. But if I focus on me, the potential to build that community partnership is probably not realistic, right? It's a short-sighted perspective. The long view, uh, you know, if, if you cultivate nice relationships, that's going to be a fruitful partnership for years, of course. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen overnight. Very true. And I also think as a as a university, as an institution, we have to think about this, right? Because we believe that, right, what you're saying, that this, this takes time, relationships take time. And yet often um, as early career, it, when we're in our early career as an academic and a scientist, it's not part of your, you know, payroll, your your effort necessarily to spend a lot of that time. You know, we have these metrics we have to meet. And so I think that, you know, being solidly in mid-career, um, maybe toward the end of mid-career, that's been really, a, I think, a, a good insight for me to realize and to think about, you know, I don't have the answer, but how do we, how to create opportunities so that our bright and diverse, you know, early career faculty really have designated time and space for this because it's it takes years right and you're often not then going to have immediately the products yeah. um, so I think I've, I have some ideas about that maybe for a different conversation but I think it's an important question I agree you know there have been and again, this will be an aside and we'll get back to to our task at hand but conversations for years about the, the moral economy of science, you know, pushing us mm-hmm. in a particular direction that doesn't lend itself to the invested community engaged kind of work that really is the hallmark of what it means to be at a land grant in many ways, right? Yep. And so their intention, you, you're, you're hitting on something that I think is important, not easy to change because there's some, you know, inertia perhaps, right? But mm-hmm. Perhaps a conversation for another day. So thanks for bringing it up. I appreciate it. I'll put in one plug, mm-hmm. and that is that I think team science plays a role, Agreed. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you know, instead of individual faculty having to go out on their own create these partnerships, yeah. I think you know we work as part of teams. Yeah. I hope to do that on our team that we formed. Um, we have a fabulous new faculty member, Anna Gutierrez Kalina, mm-hmm. um, who is also a psychologist and in human development family studies in the college, um, who is exceptional in every way. And, you know, I hope that the the partnership she's been working on a little bit can be an opportunity for her to utilize that as a foundation. So I think that there's other, it's just one example, sure. but I think teams. Yeah. yeah. Well said. Teaming. Well said. <laughs> Love it. Love it. So Lauren, take us back a little bit, back when you were one of those bright Early career, <laughs> early career scholars, um, and even before then, when was the beginning of your interest in research and this interest in blending the worlds of psychological and physiological health? When did that start? Hmm. Well, those are probably two two separate kind of landmarks okay. uh, in terms of my journey. But just in terms of being interested in psychology, I think as a teenager, I was interested in psychology. Mm. I think I had a a real interest in understanding people and understanding um, the influence of people's relationships, in particular, people's social health on their well-being. 
and on particularly their mental health. Now, if I may, is that innate or, or were you observing somebody you looked up to and thought, <laughs> ah, I, I want to be like them or, or, you know, was it a family influence? I'm always curious about the genesis of, of course, we look back, you know, there's hindsight's always 2020, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I my my own upbringing, my my mom was a stay-at-home mom, but before that she'd been a social worker. Okay. Mm, okay. My father, my biological father is a physician, and I think they both in their own way probably modeled just an interest in understanding people. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think I think probably within my family that was something that was encouraged or there were just opportunities to discuss those sorts of things. And it is also interesting because I think about the fact that, you know, my interest in psychology started when I was an adolescent Mm. and I study adolescence. Mm -hmm. Um, And I joke that now I really have, you know, some some expertise now that my children are both in the valley of adolescence. (laughs) So they are solidly in the valley of adolescence. So I thought I knew something, but now I really feel like I know something. So um yeah, so I I just I think I've always found I think that period of time in life is one that is the most I think it's the most fascinating. Yeah. There's lots of other fascinating periods, but I think it's when you're you know you're often you're most creative and you're you're most um, interested in the world around you, and there's high emotions running in all directions, sure. yeah. um, and a lot of as you said, kind of sensitivity to outside influence. Uh-huh. But then when I went to college, I had a fabulous undergraduate mentor named Joseph Allen. And where was this at? University of Virginia. Nice. And he's a psychologist who studies, uh, also a, a clinical psychologist who studies adolescent development. Mm. And I was really enamored with his research and his style of mentoring Um and his classes. And I just thought, wow, this is so neat. You can actually get paid and have a job to study relationships. He studied adolescent attachment. Um, I can go to grad school. And you mean if I do research, someone will pay for it? (laughs) So it's like, well, I, I thought maybe I wanted to be a therapist, but I think I'll just do that. And, you know, one thing led to another. I had a great graduate school experience at the University of Denver. Mm. And then I really started to get interested in the physiology and diabetes when I did my postdoctoral work. And that was at Intramural National Institute of Child Health and Human Development and also the Uniformed Services University. Mm, And um, I had two wonderful mentors there, Jack Yanofsky, who's a pediatrician and an endocrinologist, and Marion Tanofsky Kraft, who's a psychologist, and they were studying obesity and eating behavior. And um, both very well known. They yeah. were mm-hmm. terrific. They were really, yeah, they really gave me great training to just start this journey toward the intersection of mental health and uh, other health related outcomes. Do you see in yourself elements of any or all of, of these mentors in terms of the way you? conduct yourself? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, you you pick up the things that you like sure. and, and you maybe drop some of the things that you don't like as mm-hmm. much. Um, but I, I mean, that's true of everyone. I'm sure people who work with me will, I hope that they will do the same thing. They'll, they'll choose the things yeah. that they like and, and change the things that they feel like better fit them. 
Um, but yeah, I, I completely attribute um, any successes I've had in my career to the incredible mentors I have had, yeah. and they have all really been fantastic. Um, and so now I'm, you know, at this point in my career, that's my passion area is mentoring. That's great. If you were to try to distill your mentoring uh, ethos into a sentence or two, mm-hmm. what does that look like? I think that structure is important. I think that having mentoring that is not like I'm shoving it down your throat, <laughs> but no, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be scheduling these meetings with you, mm-hmm. whether you think you you want it or not. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that, and, and I guess I mean that especially for early career faculty, because I think faculty come and they think probably like I did, you know, oh, this is great. I'm on my own. I, you've got all these things to do. Or they're like, ah, <laughs> Yeah. How am I going to survive? Yeah. But in both settings, and they'll probably experience both of those, you know, um, experiences. I think that we often, especially if people look, we think, oh, they've made it to this level. They, we know they have what it takes to be successful, right. and yet it's still really hard. Yeah. And so I think that rather than waiting for people to say, I need this or I need a meeting with you, I really try to have a foundation of just this is our regular meeting schedule. And so I am available for you, you know, whether you need me for this or that. And then, of course, the content takes over the rest right. Um, right. based on their needs mm-hmm. individually. But I think um, I think being available and having some structure is really important. Yeah, and you know, I don't think structure and rigidity are synonyms, right? I, I think being intentional about mentoring is the only way you can do it. Yeah. Right. If we're you know flying blind or by the seat of our pants, we're really probably not mentoring. At best, I might be catching some things, but not being taught again to mm-hmm. to play that distinction a little bit further. And uh, you know, I think to to think about your example of the influence of your own mentors and this wisdom of. Some things I, I take on, others that I, I don't, for any of a number of reasons. I can't see myself doing that. That's a real strength for them, but I don't have it. And I'm, I'm self-aware enough to, to not try to force myself into a position I know that I'm not going to be comfortable in. You know, it seems to me a, a good mentor is, is going to equip a trainee, give them the room to make mistakes and to grow, to be the best that they can be, not to be the best copy of me that they can be. That's exactly right. right. Yeah. <laughs> it's and it's so much fun, isn't it? It is. It really is. It is so rewarding. Yeah. Thank you for all that you do in that regard. And of course I, I look forward to partnerships that are, are looming as well in that sense. So fun stuff awaits for sure. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. There's there's some mm-hmm. subtext there with partnerships. What what does uh, that entail? Nothing gets by this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So um, I have two, uh, one formalized mentoring role um, and another uh, formalized mentoring role that we could consider pending or in the pipeline. Uh Um, So one of those roles is that I am the assistant director for the Colorado Clinical and Translational Sciences Institute's um, training and education programs for early career faculty. Mm. And we call that a K series, so K-12 
pre-K, which we were discussing earlier, the acronyms, but basically they're program, a series of programs that are really designed to foster research independence primarily right. for early career faculty. Um, and the Colorado Clinical and Translational Sciences Institute, or CCTSI for short, is a big grant from the National Institutes of Health to uh, the University of Colorado's School of Medicine, uh, Colorado State University, and a host of other local hospitals. Um, and that's been a fun role. In that role, I get to mentor uh, faculty from a range of different disciplines and also have you know my eye on different opportunities that can be really helpful mm -hmm. for early career faculty. Right. That's incredible. For our listeners here, pre-K has got nothing to do with kindergarten. <laughs> yeah. So so K is a designation by the National Institutes of Health that really talks about an umbrella for career development awards. Mm -hmm. uh, I've often wondered why they didn't use C, but that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, and of course, you've got a new one as well, right? Yeah. So I have a pending grant, which... Um, is the was the the crown jewel of my as I think about it of, of my sabbatical. So I was on sabbatical last year, and the one thing I really wanted to do was to write, ideally, to obtain um, a K career development award that's called a, a K twenty four, mm. and that award in the series is an award for mentoring, mm -hmm. um, and so that'll be a five year award with the possibility of renewal. Just waiting on the the official check in the mail, but it's. <laughs> looking very promising. Good. Good. Um, and that'll carve out 25% of my time over the course of, of 12 months to dedicate specifically to mentoring faculty. That is so great. Yeah. Pretty that is cool. awesome. I know. Yeah. I'm pretty pumped about it. Yeah. I'm pumped for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You can come help me out if you want. Hey, I'd love to. I'd love to. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your mentorship practice with your adolescent wellness team and talk mm -hmm. about the lab there. What is the work that you all are doing? What does a typical day look like? And to echo Matt, what is your mentorship ethos there? Yeah. So my mentorship ethos is really a combination of having that structure. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a, a fair amount of regular meetings to discuss various tasks, small to large, for our, our various studies and people's different roles in the projects. Mm -hmm. um, with that, people getting the direction and leadership that they need from me yeah. um, and making goals and expectations clear. And at the same time, really using principles of shared leadership so that I am not the only one steering the ship, right. but that people have autonomy that is indicated for their skill set, and they can really have a say in steering the ship together. Um, and that's been really, a, over the last 10 years that I've been at CSU, it's been it's evolved a lot, you know, from me having a person or two to now we have a, a relatively large team spread over um, mostly CSU, but also the University of Colorado and other institutions. And I've been very blessed and very grateful that we've had folks who've stayed with us and figured out a new, new ways to grow. So one of the things I think that's made our lab really successful is looking for ways, you know, to have, we're going to have our, being part of a land grant and ac academic institution, we have the turnover that you're supposed to have. People right. graduate, people come in the lab and then go off to have other experiences. Mm -hmm. But we've also had some people who've come as undergrads, stayed as research associates, 
decide to stay in a research associate track. We have had uh, postdocs turn research scientists, turn faculty. So it's been fun to get to see people be able to carve out growth no matter their position and that everyone's needs are important. That's great. I I, want to talk about a day in the life, but move it off campus. So Mm -hmm. you have a family, you've got kids that you've hinted at. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us a little bit more about your family and and things that that interest and appeal to you and your family when when you're not uh, doing the business of a teacher, mentor, scholar, et cetera. Well, um, as anyone who's ever taken any science class knows that, you know, case studies have their <laughs> have, have their um, cautionary tales are only an N of one, mm-hmm. one perspective. So you've heard about my scientific and professional interest in adolescence. I also met my husband as an adolescent. Oh, wow. I know. Yep. As I said, don't, don't take that to mean that should be you. Um, but yeah, my husband and I started dating when we were 17 years old in high school Mm -hmm. and we went to prom together um i wore a beautiful purple sequin floor-like dress very stylish at the time (laughs) um and we yeah we've been married for 18 years to celebrate our 18th anniversary um thank you very much i'm very very grateful i have a wonderful partner in life and i have two healthy and happy daughters who are as as discussed, adolescence. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got dance, and my younger daughter does golf. Oh, she really nice. likes yeah, golf. Her, yeah. It's kind of in, an interesting thing. We have have some. Do you or dad golf? Um, uh, dad golfs. Okay. My personal pastime. Mom does not golf. Mom does not golf. (laughs) Mom mom has limited patience for (laughs) the the length of time that is the commitment of golf. I would much just rather be spending that on other pursuits. But hey, the 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 dad side of the family is into golf. Mm -hmm. My personal um, things I do to unwind when I'm not at work are. Kind of, well, they fall into a lot of categories, but the top ones are yoga. When I was on sabbatical, I got my teacher certification oh, nice. uh, to teach yoga, and I practice yoga regularly. Mm-hmm. And I also like anything that involves being outside. So maybe not golf, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> almost anything. <laughs> I really like being in the mountains. I love hiking, like trail running with my dogs. It's we my happy place. State, we, we live in a beautiful state. Colorado. I was I was born in Virginia, but Colorado is my home at heart. I love the mountains. So as you project into Lauren's future and the future of the team and the people you continue to be able to influence mm-hmm. and mentor and put yourself five to 10 years down the road and talk about aspirations to be considered a success, a win. I would like to, to see the following things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm really grateful that what I'm doing now is some things that I love. Yes. Um, taking a break, um, figuring out how to have a, carve out a little more balance in life for me last year was really important. And now I've been able to come back to the university with just a renewed energy and passion. Um, the things I've shared with you today, I genuinely and authentically really care about. That's clear. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really grateful um, that I get to do that for my job. I'd like to still be doing that in five or 10 years. I don't see any major career shifts. And I think that, you know, what I, what I like to still 
still do what I do and not have to write as many grants? Yes. But <laughs> being good at grant writing, getting good at skilled at grant writing is important because it gives your team resources. Yeah. And, you know, having grant funded projects helps the university. It helps you as faculty and it helps everyone working with you just to have that cushion to really steer your ship in more directions of where you really want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope to continue our funding success simply because it gives us resources to do what we really want to do. Well said. We often use this this imagery when we talk about mentoring of of individuals whose fingerprints we still bear as we mm-hmm. sort of go forward. So so what do Lauren's fingerprints look like in terms of the professional, the personal, the academic development of your trainees? Does that mm-hmm. look like? Yeah, well, if I am able to meet the goals as outlined in my pending career development award for mentoring, (laughs) (laughs) um, I will have, you know, generated clinician scientists who are really making an impact in the field of whole health, meaning addressing mental health in various ways and its impact on um, cardiovascular, metabolic physical aspects of health that are important for chronic disease prevention. And there's so many ways and needs to do that. So miles to go before we sleep. Indeed. But sleep is important too. Well said. Well said. Light on our feet. feet. Well done. That's great. Yeah, you are the exemplary health and human sciences faculty member because your work influences nearly every discipline in our college. So thank you so much for your time, sharing your great wisdom and your mentorship. I feel mentored by you just by proxy. So so thank you so much, Lauren. It was a pleasure. (laughs) Thanks for the invitation. Of course. Thank you, Lauren. Another great interview is in the books. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health and Human Science Matters. Stay tuned for the next episode. It's on the way. In the meantime, go listen to our episodes from seasons one through four. And if you want to learn more about our College of Health and Human Sciences at CSU, go to www.chhs.colostate.edu.